Hello, this is Quasimoto. Uh, I, I'm deaf, but I can still listen to the map report. It sings to me. I'm so hideous. Don't look at me. Just listen to the map report. <laughs> I love it so much. Map. Let my home back in Omaha. See if I can make it out in the world. And I got as far as Wichita. Suddenly I wasn't sure anymore. Lost all my friends in Los Angeles. We should have taken a picture with her all in New York. That was stupid. But, uh, I mean, no. perhaps it's because but we took a moving picture. Because we took video. Well, can't we just take an image from the video? Where the yeah. fans they always crying out. I was rolling at the same time. Oh, why ever? Just be like random profiles and people oh, yeah. crouching. Wanted to prove it to my family. Why do you keep saying that, Greg? <laughs> <laughs> We're recording. This is a show. People are listening. All right. <laughs> <That's funny. laughs> uh, Welcome. Welcome. You never want to know what you need, my God. Welcome, darling. That's what the show is going to be. Treatment for Greg's compulsive need to be the opener of the show. That's right. It slowly breaks down. You can control. You can feel officially. Been listening for 20 yeah. minutes. What's going on? All kinds yeah. of things. Greg is so we're, uh, from the roadside. Calling you from uh, a Jeep in Oakland next to a bar. No, um, uh, no, I'm not doing that. I I am driving home though. Um, and uh, so I'm in the car, and uh, Clea is at home at Eagle Studios, and Story is in Tiny House, and Russ is in BH, and so it's in different places. So if I if I swear as I get caught up in traffic, or if I, you know, get mad at some guy who's in front of me driving strangely, you guys will know what's going on out there in radio. We'll know that you, some guy either cut you off or you're you're swearing at someone, like you just said. Right. So I wanted to uh, I want to ask a question because we before the show started we were talking a little bit about this. Um, mind-blowing uh, thing that Russ had uh, read or actually heard on an audiobook, um, And I wanted to, I, you know, hopefully you can bring this into this discussion, Russ, because I said I wanted to save this part for the show. But I was listening to uh, the BBC, uh, and they were there was this guy who was talking about um, a comedy improv troupe, not Groundlings, Russ, you're not, uh, that helps with different companies and corporations to, you know, become, it sort of help people become more creative in their everyday work. And so they were trying to talk about creativity Did get them to quit? through... <laughs> yeah, right. Because that has done wonders for me. Let me tell you. <laughs> the way to stop... Exactly, yeah. Exactly. No, but, uh, so they were going through whatever. They were, they were doing their different things. This guy that was comedian, this comedian, and they started talking about this one exercise where instead of using, um, Basically, the, the exercise requires that you use the term, the word yes and. So someone sets up a premise, and they're like, so-and-so uh, got arrested today. And the person who's listening said, yes, and he was a serial killer. And the other person said, yes, and he was put in jail. Yeah, and welcome to Groundlings. Yes. 
Right. Okay. That is that growling. That is a uh, tried and true improv technique, um, yeah. and okay. something that I that I resisted when I was at Groundlings because they would always say, first of all, they have two main rules regarding dialogue, which is one, you never ask questions, and two, you always affirm whatever your partner is talking about. Yeah, why would questions ever be funny? Yeah, I know, but that's a stand. It's also it's also just a standard improv. Um, exercise okay it is i blame groundlings for it but i'm sure that okay. you know most well, schools i'm sure well groundlings groundlings bastardized. you blame not. groundlings for the holocaust to be fair so i mean that's, that's true hardly and i mean right because of yes and and the rule set of the oh wow that's i mean the nazis did scientific research but they bastardized it you know so you can't blame scientific research for what the nazis did you can't blame, you know, the improv practice for the way the groundlings misused it. You know, I mean, that's like a whole other take. Things. What was that? What was it? Who who said that? Like that they they come for so and so, they come for so and so, then they'll come for you or something. What was that? Yeah, right, right. They came for you know the Jews, and I said nothing because I was not a Jew, and they came for right. gypsies, and I said nothing because I was not a gypsy. So like I the mod- so like they the came for the question. That boys, but you, I was not a question. What so I allowed it to happen. Right. But then so, they came for the humor, right. but I was not funny. So I allowed it to happen. Exactly. No, no, I was right. thinking and yes, so, and... Then they came for Conan O'Brien. <laughs> but I was not Conan O'Brien. So, so, it's like, it so, so it's like the Nazis had said, okay, we're going to get rid of the Jews, yes, and... Okay, we're going to get rid of <laughs> the gypsies, yes, and... <laughs> All right, we're going to get yeah. rid of the homosexuals, yes, and... And then... <laughs> no more and then. Oh. And then... <laughs> and then... Oh, well. Put it in a bag and we'll eat it. And then... <laughs> and then... We'll, oh. well didn't they more? kill, like, Catholics, too, or something? Yeah. yeah. Theoretically, I don't think there was much. Yeah, uh, they pretty much killed that. people by the end of it. Yeah, pretty much the people. <laughs> they had the problem. Oh, that's what it is. That's what it is. So, so he was say he was asking the guys, okay, so who who described to pre- me the person that we're going to kill? Okay, well they're they're Jewish, yes, and um, okay, they're homosexual, yes, and it's like. A murderous game of guess who? It's yes. Like, a beard? Does they have a beard? Yes. And <laughs> are they wearing glasses? Yes. yes. And puts them down. What I found interesting about this exercise was that not—I mean—that the yes and part was whatever. That was fine. But the interesting <laughs> thing was, and I just proved now that yes, but was the sort of standard thing that everybody does. Like, yes and is awkward linguistically. If you say, yeah, you know, it's very, much more easy to say, blah, 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 yes, but I think we could do this, or yes, but I don't agree, or yes, but really, and the sort of story's version of this term is to be fair, and Russ has picked up on that as a high. To be fair, which in story speak means, what the hell are you talking about? Honestly, <laughs> this should be legal, right? Mm-hmm. So, that's, yeah, that's it's my, at the my end opening of the day. salvo for a counterpoint. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah, you're not oh, even not allowed a, to. It is not at the end of the day. At you can't even pass a passive aggressive You must yeah. full wholeheartedly affirm everything at all times. There is no room for dissent. Yeah. It is another right. aspect of fascism. <laughs> There's no dissent. There's so no where did the Nazi well, jokes come in then? All right. At the point I realized, at the point that you said that this was a grounding thing, I should have realized that I was never going to be able to, you know, say how I found it intriguing because it was obviously. You know, originally created by Dr. Mengele. So, 
but you know the theory anyway. That yeah, they I did some interesting crazy. experiments in those camps, with especially with twins and the children, from what I've read. Right, right. You can't totally delightful. discount the whole operation. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, my my point being that I thought it was interesting that that we find yes, but or the but construction, uh, but as opposed to another kind of but, we find that construction much more easy and sort of we jump into the negation, no, that's wrong, much easier than we jump into sort of integrating what the other person is saying, which I found interesting, although, of course, now that I know it's, you know, created by the groundlings, it is evil and unclean. But at the time, I didn't know that, so I was, you know. Well, I mean, this is the difference between a group full of debaters and a group full of people who are trying desperately to suspend people's disbelief. And I think the roots of the question thing are about suspension of disbelief, that there's a concern that if you ask too many questions, then you'll come up with something someone can't answer and the illusion will shatter. And so mm-hmm. if you just say things, I mean, it's totally consistent with, like, the Will Ferrell school of comedy of, like, if you just say things and are informative and are really bold about Most everything friendly. and it's bigger than life, well, I know this is why I'm saying this, like, okay. you know, then it's <laughs> – I do remember Report 6, sir. Um, and, you know, so then it's then it's going to be saleable. Then you're going to be able to sell whatever you're saying. So, you know, whereas we, whereas our, huh? You're fading out. Yes, but is not a question. Right. I mean, so. No, but it's a dissent. I mean, the whole point is that our constructions all come from dissent because we were all schooled in debate. And so, uh, okay. like, our road to humor is totally the exact opposite of, the, like, the last thing we're worried about is is keeping other people's credibility intact because we're tearing down arguments. <laughs> I mean, seriously. <laughs> like, it makes perfect sense that we're, like, on the exact opposite end of the spectrum. So. So, yes. so basically, and the fact that the Groundlings created something which is affirming <laughs> and sort of is still wrong as opposed to our method, which is to shoot other people's credibility down, because at least we're not the groundlings. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, would you rather live in a society where each person in a conversation listens and then uh, integrates their own opinion into the matter, or would you rather live somewhere where everyone blindly agrees with whatever the last thing was that they heard because they don't have any independent thought? That's a good point. And another good point is, you know, yeah, I, I know what you mean. Maybe not. To but be I fair, aren't you full of crap? Yes. <laughs> and I've gained a lot of weight recently. Yay, <laughs> <laughs> scatological humor. It's all real problems. Okay. Well done. Well played. All right. I think our work is done here. <laughs> Russ, is Growling still like a major deal out in L.A., or have they lost any of their luster since our attack on them? Uh, my uh, understanding is that, uh, well, unlike our attack, the economy actually had a, quite a bit. <laughs> so they were, I mean, just a huge money machine. Yes, but since, since our attack affected the economy, therefore... Uh, I was just going to say, we killed the economy, so, you know, right. Yeah, I mean, by our attack, you do mean that. Oh, oh. no. <laughs> In the same way that we uh, debunked and disbanded the Ramtha School of Enlightenment, which no longer exists, to my knowledge. 
Really? I, no, of course it does. I, I'm sure. <laughs> 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 yeah. Yes, but I'm making things up. <laughs> yes, and Scientology is bad. Scientology was destroyed today by the Pepper Board. And awesome. Uh, you know? I wonder if Scientology will ever like, have a big fall. added music to their website, if anybody's curious. God. Not that I would have recently found out. Not I mean, five seconds. oh, Ramtha. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they become a pleasant dance organization. Like you just get together to dance, like a meetup group now. You know, the Ramtha School of Enlightenment and Swing Dance. <laughs> right. Yeah. So I'm gonna blow your minds uh, briefly, if I may. Um, All right. Blow away. Blow freely. Yeah, that's some pretty that's cool music. Everyone's watching Ramtha now. So this is a good setting for blowing oh your mind. Oh, my God. This is an awesome website. Consistently with <laughs> trans- uh, Greg, I think you have about 30 seconds to save your wife from this cult. <laughs> just so you know. Send <laughs> Archer. I want to learn how to do that. Quick, blow our minds, Russ. It's our only hope. Oh, the sentence lose all autonomy. Don't stop. Is the answer. Why does it have all of this Las Vegas theme stuff on it? Whatever happens in Yelm stays in Yelm. Yeah, exactly. Stays in Yelm. The house always wins. Okay, quick, blow our minds, Russ. Okay, I made it it out. I'm all right. Before we started recording, and before Cleo was with us, I was describing to you a book that I read this year that was one of the first psychology tomes I ever opened up, which, to briefly summarize, talked about how much of our lives and more than we'd like to accept are engineered by our early formative experiences and, to a large extent, our parents and siblings and people who affected us before the age of five. And then while I was on vacation, I uh, I read Outliers, the, the bestseller by Malcolm Gladwell, and... The interesting thing is that he comes to a lot of the same conclusions from a sociological viewpoint um, as opposed to a psychological one. Uh, and he argues in part of his book, part the main theme is about successful people. And I'm going to give part of the book away. Hope you guys don't mind. He, I mean, he gives his thesis very early in the book and then mostly reinforces it as it goes on. So I'm not really ruining it for you. Is that many of the people that we think of as extraordinarily talented and one in a million were actually beneficiaries of extraordinary circumstances and luck and used that opportunity to do an incredible amount of work to gain mastery in something and capitalize on some economic or social movement to make them who they are, like Bill Gates and the Beatles. He actually uses them as an example. But um, more interestingly, for the rest of the book, he argues that cultural heritage – affects us such that behaviors of people of our descent from three or 400 years ago are carried forward by us um, without our knowledge in our daily lives. Example, um, in the South, the murder rate is so much higher than everywhere else, um, despite the fact that for strangers, the South is, is as safe or safer than anywhere else in the country. The times when it's not safe is if you if you know people that you're in a conflict with, you're likely to be murdered by them, as opposed to murdered by strangers. Or if you're black, right? No, actually, that doesn't hold. Like it's, I mean, okay, during the lynchings, I'm sure, but we're talking like the last 30 years. It's actually as safe as anywhere else in the country, but the murder rates skyrocket when you're talking about within uh, intrafamilial murder. Okay, so so let me let me let me let me summarize here. 
We have yeah. all of this research that have said that actually people are killed by someone they know. And since everyone in the South knows each other, therefore, <laughs> more no, people not... die in the South. The reason is, be... is because most of the, the, uh, the residents of the South are descendants of honor cultures. And honor cultures, um, uh, at the example that he gives in the book are – for, uh, for an agri- let's okay. So let's take a normal farmer, uh, purveyor of agriculture, whatever. He, it's the community is important to him because he has to. He needs help to harvest, and he has to sell his goods, so he needs to interact with the community. Does this person work for Tyson or Monsanto? Yeah, this is uh, three hundred years ago. Oh, okay. So, um, right. however, uh, shepherds lived a much more insular life because there was constant fear that their entire livelihood would be stolen overnight because if you steal the livestock, you know, it's much easier to steal livestock than it is to harvest an entire grain yield, you know, overnight while somebody's sleeping. So because yeah, of that, right. So because of that, shepherds uh, had to live by a code of honor, wherein you know that if you harm them, then they basically will kill you. And that's the only way they were able to protect their property. And so these honor cultures developed in these sort of rocky, hilly areas where shepherding was the most lucrative form of uh, of living, such as uh, the highlands in Scotland and parts of Ireland and parts of the sort of what became the sort of um, uninhabited dangerous zone that the British government was never able to control. And so the descendants have now moved to the south and, and honor killings are, you know, just as common as they were back when... There were reasons for it when people were shepherds because of this cultural legacy that they left behind. Are you telling me that the increased murder rate in the South is because people are stealing of the South's flocks? Because I think we could address that. No, no he's not. To... That's not at all what he's saying. He was saying it's because that... of goat thieves 300 years ago. Yeah. I know. Oh, otherwise, we could figure out a way to secure their sheep, like their fences and... Anyway, moving on. Uh, interesting, but but I mean, I, I don't see. I mean, I, I still think that there's been so much inter-ethnic joining and mm-hmm. mixing right. that yeah. I can't believe that the. I mean, it just seems. I mean, I won't. I won't deny that I'm intrigued by the idea. That because I do feel this to be true that there's some there's aspects of personality or uh, large chunks of personality that are in the genes, and so it's interesting that such types of things might develop. But I can't believe that such a specific differentiation would have mutated well, to develop about, so quickly. I mean, you really are talking... I mean, how many hundreds... That's not about genes, though. That's about society, right? That's about the environment that you're growing up in. That right. Those are the expectations, and that's the sort of... The reasons that it's okay to kill someone or to avenge yourself no, or, the, you know, the, the practice of I keeping guns know. around. Very little of this... I didn't get anything genetic. Out oh, of I, I, I think it. the only I think the only way his theory holds any cloud is if it was genetic, because I don't think... I think the the societal influences would have been changed by then. Well, no, it it is actually – it's not a genetic argument at all. It's the sort of argument that passed down from family to family are the mottos like die like your daddy did, you know, have a good death. Or, you know, the Hatfields and the McCoys, these are all families that lived in Appalachia and because of this same tradition of honor culture and honor killings and that they they would just perpetuate themselves and a lot of people still live by that code because that survived through their families. So it's interesting when when you describe that type of 
behavior to me. I don't think shepherd. I think of one of those guys that would slap a glove across the other guy's face. Mm-hmm. Like it's a... probably similar to other shepherd cultures. I mean, I don't think there were a particularly disproportionate shepherding actually in the South. So well, did shepherd... the, the immigrants who immigrated there. Kind of society. Oh, we're from uh, there. Their, their descendants were. Mm-hmm. So did them. shepherds, like, when someone wronged them, would they slap them with a glove? <laughs> no, they would kill them so that their reputation grew in town that you don't steal the goats. So from, where did the glove uh, slap Mr. McCoy? No, 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 no. Explain the glove. Yeah, I mean, little Bo Peep wore gloves. And why would she need to wear gloves? I mean, it didn't fit. And little Bo Peep was not a dualist. Ergo, the honor culture doesn't exist in fairy tales. Therefore, does he take into account? I mean, does he take into account, for example, in the modern day, um, you know, gang violence? A lot of which is, you know, yes, you can find some in the south, but you also find a lot of it in the north and the west, which is really founded around the concept of honor killing. Yeah, just know? about revenge. I mean, I mean, you're, that's, that's pretty much what you're talking about, right? Is revenge? Right. Yeah, revenge right. killing. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I think that has more to do with. I mean, revenge is not limited to shepherds. Oh, certainly not. And you know what? I would like to take this moment. I would like to take this moment to quote one of the most famous shepherds ever. I knew this was coming. (laughs) I was waiting for Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Turn the other cheek. Dust. uh, What's it? Like something about getting the dust off your shoes or something? Oh, she loves the clout. Oh, no. Wait, what's the next line? Line! Line! Don't ask me a question. Just give me the line. Knock the dust. What is it? Knock the dust from your slippers? I think it's knock the boots, and then there will be no need for (laughs) anger. Shit. Don't, don't, don't. Whatever you do. (laughs) Say there's no place like home. Whatever you do, do not... Google knock the dust because you get knock the dust off that pussy. Yeah, I could have told you that. Uh, that was not, that's not going to be a, a good thing. An expert. No, it's just right. bad phrase. And then you, and then you get not. Livingston du- Dust Control Services. Uh, well, they are connected. Um, so I would like to instead quote a different source to you. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. I think and she went looking and found spree. them from some freaking sheep wrestler yeah. <laughs> and had to slap them across the face with her gloves. <laughs> yeah, the epilogue. Which is, right. she went the ass of little Bob Blast and found them. Yeah, exactly. Seriously. So. And that's also why there there are no known parables of uh, the next door neighbor stealing Jesus's sheep, because then Jesus <laughs> would have had to get medieval on their asses. Right, he watched over their flocks by night, you know. He didn't, he didn't neglect them. He didn't say, here, take my sheep, please. That didn't happen. Take my sheep, please. <laughs> exactly. I guess he wasn't actually a shepherd, though. He was actually a carpenter who yeah. appealed to the shepherds. Right. Carpenters have to yeah. sell things to people. They have to build things for people. They need, they're need. relationshipy people. They're potential messiahs. I see that. Shepherds, not so much. But I mean, look. In all seriousness, you know, isn't the mobility of current our current mobile society sort of breaking this all down, or does he still think that by and large these regional differences hold? You know, like well, I mean, 
I mean, he thinks that if you look into someone's genealogy, you can tell quite a bit about their behavior, regardless of what their lives are like in the modern day. And this is just cultural norms. This is not specific to families. Obviously, on a case-by-case basis, they'll differ, but as a sociologist studying groups, if you study a group of a certain culture, he argues that the... And and honestly, a lot of them are, are very challenging to PC beliefs that we have now about analyzing people's cultures and the stereotypes that are formed around them, but he he actually reinforces a lot of those stereotypes in Outliers, interestingly. I see. Such as, there's an entire chapter on Asians being good at math and why they're good at math. Do you want to hear his explanation for that? Uh, sure. Does it involve them being shepherds? You know what happens no. when you when you Google genealogy and personality? You get Celine, Celine Dion, web.com. <laughs> Yeah, she's really the most evolved form of humans. So. Right, I agree. <laughs> sort of um, yeah. As far as personality goes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so why, why then, Russ, are Asians good at math according to Malcolm Gladwell? Because they're descended from rice paddy farmers. That's why. <laughs> Who had to count rice paddies? And so they learned to yeah. become... The argument was that being a rice paddy farmer was not only an intellectually grueling occupation, um, but uh, given that they were poor, uh, most farmers in the Western world um, relied on technology, uh, plows and threshers and other things to increase the yield. Rice paddy farmers couldn't do that, so it was only the most discerning rice paddy farmers who could uh, you know, have the exact precise measurement of water submersion of the crop and manage it on a daily basis and giving a certain distribution of seeds to right, manage so right the there, Right there you are saying you're saying survival of the fittest therefore you are saying genes. No, it's not genes. But he is. It's not genes. It's just the skills that were necessary to be a good rice paddy farmer. I.e. the person also, that had the better ability, i.e. the person who had the better genes. But it had nothing to do with yeah. genes. It was just the lifestyle that they lived reinforced these abilities. and then They, they all had the these, same lifestyle. They passed these traits down to their children. What, someone's I mean, not, house not had an extra thing. chair in it, so he got to practice more counting of chairs? They all lived exactly the same. Yeah, and that's why the culture in general is better at math because they have – A, they have a much stronger work ethic because farming cycles in the East are different from the West. So you in pretty the East, much just ignored my statement. Is what? That they had more chairs? The point is, is that first of all, I said, therefore, he is talking about genetic difference. And you said, no. It's about that, genetic let, difference. let me finish. It, then you said, no, it's because those people had particular skills and therefore they did better than I, it, because of their way of life. And I said, but they all had the same way of life. And then you said, correct. Aha. They all had the same way of life. And therefore, that's why people today are better at math. But, but that, that has nothing to do sense. with the genes. Yeah. It has nothing to do with the but genes. It just has to do with the lessons passed down from the earliest rice paddy farmers of hard work and having a you know a rigorous steeled mind. Okay, and so but, all of their children. But we have to. But again, we have to go back down to the fact of you said the best that were that were at it were the ones that were most successful. That's a concept of survival of the fittest. Therefore, that's a concept yeah. of certain people were better than oh, no. others. You can argue that it's like social Darwinism that doesn't have any impact on on genetics. I don't I don't think it has to be a genetic argument to say that if one rice paddy farmer worked really hard um, and was lucrative and had more kids, that he passed down his message to the. And it right. doesn't have to be a genetic argument. I think it's the opposite of genetics. It's like okay, 
you have to spend your life <clears throat> digging ditches for whatever reason. Just go with it. And so, okay. therefore, you get really muscular digging ditches the whole time because that's what happens. That's not a genetic predisposition to build muscles. It's that you're given a life where you have to build muscles. And then you have a child and they inherit the ditch digging job or whatever else. You know, they are growing up with you as a priority of building muscles, and you're going to have to take over this job where you have muscles. So, I guess you I know, can that's see... not genetics. That's not about a predisposition to build muscles. It's about your experience and your environment shaping what you have to do or how you survive. But, so, yeah, I, you have underst- to survive. It's toward the end of survival, Dan, but it's not based on genetics. I understand that. I guess what I should but, say is that, is that I, I see let me put it differently is I do think that what you said of the social Darwinism is actually maybe a better example. I mean, first of all, I do think that, that there is an interconnection about what we do, that that there is some coding that happens on, on our genes that I don't think we fully comprehend yet, but I'll put that whole thing aside and stop talking about genes. I do think that social Darwinism could be where we're going here, but I think the same thing stands is that you're talking about certain people being better at certain things where does that shift then to entire populations doing the same thing? Because that's what works. Well, because that's the, the yeah. geography that they live in. And so that's out of necessity. They have to be rice paddy farmers because of the land that they own and the, the circumstances of their, uh, you know, of their culture. But I, I see, leaving aside the genetic thing for a moment, I don't... It strikes me that this just reminds me very much of the kind of thing that one says. There's an NPR show called Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And one of the things they do in that show is they say three theories and they ask you to pick what are three things and they ask you to pick what the actual, you know, it's like balderdash or something like what's the true definition. And, and this strikes me as one of those theories that sounds vaguely plausible and then you start analyzing it and you're like, wait a minute. So, the, so Asians today, okay, are good at math. I mean, like, for one thing, if it's not genetic, if it is solely because you pass these things down, that would have to be broken at the point someone didn't use do rice paddy farming anymore, right? Like, well, no, if it's not the... genetic, it's associated with that, then the modern-day Asian who, according to the stereotype, is good at math, is not going to know word one about what grandpa knew about rice paddy farming, and so he's not going to get the benefit of being better at numbers because of that knowledge. Well, so but the value in rice paddy farming that made them good at math was to that they – was much of it was work ethic. And so family to family, even if they'd migrated out of rice paddy farming, they still would have ingrained in them the harder you work, the more you yield. And in comparing um, – Yeah, but you don't think the Puritan work ethic has the same, same thing going on in America? No, you I don't. I don't, because oh. in, in, historically, uh, Gladwell argued in the book that historically peasants in Western Europe ha- didn't work that much. That even though we think that they did, really they worked hard during the harvest, but during the winter time they nearly hibernated through the entire season. There was very little work for them to do. They were lax. They were loafing around most of the year, other than the harvest. Whereas um, rice paddy farmers, because of the different nature of the agriculture they're working in had to work year-round to keep up crops and rotate seeds. And just because of the what's necessary for a rice yield as opposed to what's necessary for a grain yield, that shaped entire cultures and work ethic. And, and he argues the entire concept of the um, summer vacation, which is something that we have that Eastern cultures don't, came out of ideas that you can, over, you can exhaust children through too much work, such as you can exhaust soil through too much farming. 
And in the East, they never had those concepts, so they never had an extended summer vacation. So some of the other factors that make Asian kids good at math are they have a longer school year than Western kids do, so they have more time to learn. And uh, then the final one was that, was that their counting system is more intuitive than ours. They're, they're, the way they name numbers is more intuitive than ours. So it's easier for them to conceptualize numbers. What's that? Might also be why they well, it might be also why they kill themselves off at a more prodigious rate with lack of vacation. I mean, the, the problem I have with this argument... Yeah, it might be. I'm not saying it's all positive. I'm just saying in regard to math skills. Yeah. Well, I can't speak for the rest of Europe, but I can tell you that on, in, in England anyway, especially during the period of the Renaissance, I mean, he's nuts. That, that is not the way, you know, peasants work constantly, in part because England did not have a particularly harsh winter. So, you know, a lot of what you were doing doing during the winter, even if the ground was not plowable, is you were trying to do other things on the side. You were trying to, when you could, shore up your house, thatch your roof better. You were trying to fight the constant influx of beds of bugs and vermin and all that other kind of thing. You were trying to survive the cold. I mean, this idea that, you know, you collected all this stuff and then lazed around the rest of the year is just, it's just it's wrong. I mean, that's just not accurate, at least in terms of England. Now, I can't speak for... You know, other places in Europe, there were areas where, you know, people were lazy. I mean, probably the French, right? I mean, who knows? I'm sure the French were lazy. But no, I'm just kidding. But I mean, I, I don't, I, it's just, to me, it's based on kind of shoddy information that sounds awfully neat. And frankly, it does feel to me like he's taking a stereotype and then being like, let's accept that as true and then work backwards to explain it rather than, work, you know, looking back, seeing what the sort of root of something is, and then building up to whatever we have now. I mean, instead, well, it seems to me like no, he doesn't, the premise is the premise accurate. He doesn't, it, the premise is accurate. I mean, if you look at testing um, across different countries, they do have a standardized test that all students take from every major country in the world. The top six or seven countries are always, you know, Taiwan, Singapore, Korea, Japan. Um, they're always in the top grouping without fail. And yeah, but that has a lot more to do with an incredible, you know, an obedience culture, a chain culture, and it has a lot to do with... Well, that's one theory. I mean, it's just you different know, theories I mean, to try to explain the same uh, thing. Um, one other, one other aspect of the, the uh, medieval portion of it was that um, feudalism didn't exist in the East because um, rice paddy farmers needed to be self-motivated to be good at it because if they, you know, if, if they were forced to pay, you know, regardless of their yield, then you, you wouldn't have the discerning rice paddy farmers that had the, the greatest crop. And so since landlords in the East typically just took a, a standardized rent from them every month, the, the better their crop was, the more money they would make. And so there was much more entrepreneurial sense to peasants in the East, even though they were still peasants, than there were to peasants under the feudal system. And so that was another reason why they believed, they, they believed more in hard work than, uh, than the Western mindset. I mean, they, what they did in the book, they also compared uh, sayings and parables from Eastern peasants and Western peasants. And, you know, Russian peasants would say things like, um, you know, if, if God wills the crop, then the crop will come. And then Chinese right. peasants would say something to the effect of, you know, if you work your soil, then it will yield what you need. It, it will yield what you needed to. So it was a much more work results driven philosophy than the uh, the Eastern peasants who relied on nature and and God. And so, and that translates. And they said thirty five rice paddies times twelve months <laughs> equals uh, six hundred and forty five yield of right. I'm sorry. Did I did I miss That's the part where you said he talked? He said that. 
he took into consideration that maybe one area had harsher weather and therefore thought that maybe they had to depend more on the on the on God um God's mood? No, I think I think it had more to do with the systems of farming because in a standardized agriculture uh, grain farming a you have to let the soil rest and you're rotating crops throughout the year and b there's like a very I guess there's I mean I don't know I'm not a farmer but as I understand it yes, there's a <laughs> it's a much more structured <laughs> like planting and harvesting season on, uh, and then you let the the soil uh, rest, you are rest descended season, from that's farmers you just don't know it's farming yeah so it's just the yeah. two different systems of farming led to two different mindsets which led to two different belief systems um amongst the children and I would I would think okay. weather I think weather would have more to do with it. I mean I th- I I thought that was like the whole where God came from was just that, that that we had no control over over this weather that would completely affect societies and affect people dying or living and we were just completely beholden to it and so they tried to they hoped that maybe there's like a god that was controlling it and so they tried to pray to it and China, you know, they all had like beautiful sun. They didn't have to worry about that kind of crap. Not until they don't have you know, weather in China. They don't have like huge. They didn't have like huge, <laughs> huge big major changes in weather. Cultural weather, I mean, right. so, like tsunamis and what? What does he say? So then, what does he say? About I'm sorry. Do they have tsunamis farm? in 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 yes, farmland? Well, in China, in Japan, Japan, they call them mini tsunamis. I thought we were talking about China. No, strangely, China was lower on the list than the other rice, the the more um, robust rice farming countries like Singapore and Korea and Japan and uh, Taiwan. I don't know why that's substantially different than China. How how often does a tsunami hit? I I mean, I, I I'm trying Compared to convey every year, but I can't speak to weather trends in the in, in Asia, nor can I speak to rice paddy farming minutia. Well, you are an expert in all these things. That's <laughs> I, nice. don't know. Just, I mean, when you, because, it's because it's because Russ's family were not you know experts in this, so Russ cannot be expected to be exactly. I, the expertise he was not passed down. I mean, like, like literally, northeast, the northwest. Well, what does he say about what is the expertise of people who came from the northeast? Uh, in my case and Russ's case, Southwest in Story's case, and Northwest in Clear's case. I mean, you must have something to say about those things, right? No. Each, each no? chapter is, presents a very specific example on one culture and how its uh, cultural norms led to either a problem or a benefit in modern life that is unrelated to where the cultural norm came from. It was just simply passed down as uh, tradition. I see. For instance, I'll give you one more. So since we're going to go through the whole book of outliers, um, in in the eighties and nineties, or I think specifically more in the nineties, um, Air Korea had some kind of horrific rate of crashes that was thirty or forty or fifty times greater than any other airline in the world, and it became this national disgrace and scandal for them. And um, Gladwell's theory on why this happened, similar to the theory of the FAA and the investigating agencies that looked into these, this airline as like every airport in the world stopped accepting pilots or stopped accepting flights from air Korea into their airport because they were afraid they were going to crash into their airport based on the increased crash rates was that because of Korea's honor culture, um, first officers who saw potential problems with 
whatever, the weather, the flight path, would not give a direct warning to the captain because to do so would be an insult to the captain. And so to get them out of the cycle of crashes, they had to completely change the interaction between the subordinates and the superiors in the Korean flights. And to do that, they made them all learn English so that they didn't have to have the built-in hierarchies of the Korean language in the way that they spoke. Because there are like six different tenses in Korean depending on the relationship of the two people speaking to each other. And that was preventing proper communication to prevent problems on airlines. And so they did that. They trained them all in English, and then they had a pristine flying record after that. And then all the Korean pilots who refused to learn English were shipped immediately to ValueJet. And then there was that problem. So rather rather than saying, this isn't, uh, you know, is that a mountain, Captain? It was sort of like, Captain, it is a beautiful day. Yes, it is. A day which is in no way blotted out by that large object in our screen. No, it is not. Right? Like, I mean, that's how they had to do it. To get you have no idea how accurate flying. what you're saying, how that corresponds to what they actually did. Like, that's exactly what they did. Oh, my <laughs> they, they God. They used, like, the most what? indirect phrasing possible for fear of insulting <laughs> their, their superior. I'm and often so, surprised by how mountains will prevent planes from flying when one goes near them. <laughs> surprised? What a harsh word. How dare you be surprised in my presence? And so, I'll strike you. I find intriguing. Yeah, intriguing the solidness of a mountain compared to the speed of a plane. <laughs> so there were examples from these more honor-bound cultures, um, like Colombia was an example where you know, the the first officer noted that they were heading into a very heavy rainstorm and the captain wasn't taking precautions necessary. And they and so one of the, co- the co-pilots said to the captain, oh, it's a good thing we have this weather-sensing radar on board. It really is helpful. And the captain's like, yeah. But what the guy was trying to say was that we should make preparations for this weather system that we're entering. But they couldn't, he couldn't directly wow. say that to the captain. This is implication. Yeah. See, direct... Open, honest communication. Yet another way that privacy is killing us all. Because of privacy, because of arcane ways of trying to show respect and deference for other people in our language and our habits. This is death. It is is murder. Privacy is murder. I'm glad there was a warning a pilot about a mountain is clearly an invasion of privacy. I said it. I said it. Well, it's an invasion of, you know, some warped sense of dignity associated with privacy. It's just a logical extension of privacy. Greg, can you bring up that example of the of the of how your students disrespect you on email? Where does that fit in? Um which which student are you talking about here? Is this the student that called you the other night? At home, and the number he wasn't supposed to. Have. <laughs> no, the the one that wanted you to fill out the form. Oh well, I don't. Yeah, I, well, I don't know that I can really bring that up specifically. Well, that's I why mean, I wasn't saying talking specifically. Why? Because of privacy. <laughs> privacy is murder. People are dying right <laughs> now. Anyway, <laughs> save their lives. Um, Speak the truth. I, the radio. I, most of my students are not like this, but I do get the occasional student who comes up with, sort of, and I, I don't know if it's just sort of tone deafness, but it's this real kind of, not just direct, but sort of as if, as if we're complete equals. And, and I wonder if they did this in other context, what it would be like. Like, I mean, you know, if you walk into, you know, like, for example, I'll give one for stories benefit. 
story if you were to somehow miraculously be able to meet Mahatma Gandhi? I assume you would not be like, yo, Mahatma, what up, right? Like, I assume you would not be like, you know, high-fiving him or anything else. I would assume you would be extremely deferential. I would assume you would be, you know, honored to be in his presence, that sort of thing. And I mention that not because I students to be honored in the presence of teachers, but, it's you know, it's like there's no sense in some cases of that you're dealing with a different register. It's like going into your boss, and, yeah, people can call their bosses by their first name, but you can't just be like, you know, well, you're a stupid moron. What the hell are you doing? God, what a jacket. You know, like, I know, Story, you wanted to say that to one of your ex-bosses. But the it's point, true. But the point is, I got around to it that. eventually. <laughs> right. right. I mean, the point, but the point is you're not able to say that in that same context, and it feels to me like this. some students kind of don't get that, and <coughs> there's this there is no different register, and they're just like, oh, yeah, you know, I'll send you a really kind of obnoxious email like I would send a friend because, of course, you're exactly, you know, the same level as everyone else around me, you know? And uh, so it's, it's, it's weird. It's almost like you don't want to write back and say, um, this isn't appropriate. I have said that in some cases, and you know, this is really not appropriate for a student to send to a professor. But, uh-huh. you know, it's almost like one of those things that I feel like I shouldn't have to do that, you know, because it's like in no other context would this be allowed. If You you could just never you know, speak to them again. They'd get the message. <laughs> them. Well, yeah. Shame. The silent treatment. You could turn your back on them when you know? they entered a room from yeah. then on. Right. <laughs> I could shun them. Yeah, exactly. Right. Um, but so I do think that that has been lost a little bit. And I don't know if that's just sort of a result of a society that really – emphasizes equivalency, not just equality, but equivalency, where everything is equal to everything else, like Fox and its stupid fair and balanced, where we have to give you two sides of the same story, even if there really aren't two sides, you know? Like, and on the one side, we have the idea that Barack Obama was born in this country, but let's look at the other side, and like, the other side is a bunch of tinfoil hat conspiracists, because the story's been answered 12 times by Hawaii, that's like, here's the birth certificate in triplicate officially, and here's the guy who signed it, you know, what else do you want? So, you know, like, I, I guess that's that equivalency has led everyone to believe they're equal to everybody else in, in every respect. I don't think it's related I, I to that. I don't know, but I mean, I mean, I, I that, yeah, I mean, I think know. college is a blurry time for people. I mean, I would be surprised <laughs> if that if what you're experiencing blurry time is, for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, you know, but I think that it's like I would be surprised if. Today. I haven't encountered much. Yeah, I mean, I, I would be surprised if it was that less prevalent, you know, 50 or 80 years ago. I mean, 80, who knows, 80 years ago. But, you know, and email, I'm sure, I mean, part of it, I think, is just about the technology, right? Like, part of it is just that, you know, people get used to a certain style of emailing people, and that's very hard to stop emailing. You know, it's like text speak making it into papers because you do both of them at a yeah. keyboard. You know, like once you start in certain habits, interfacing with a certain technology in a certain way, it's very hard to then put sort of strict structures of societal expectation on it. Because I'm sure, like, I don't think any of these instances, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I doubt any of these instances you're talking about are a student walking up to you and saying blank. Um, They're all instances of sort of an indirect communication, right? Yeah, pretty much it's yeah. always through email. That's- it's all like through email, maybe even over the phone, but like those are technologies where people, I think, you know, have a hard time, like there's sort of a cultural shift of knowing how to apply a very informal sort of 
weird unrestricted technology to relationships that still have those other implications. So, but I mean, you think that it could be, but it couldn't be the reverse, and it could actually be that they feel like it gives them license to do that. Like if I communicate to someone no. an email, then it's okay to use lead speak and call them. You know, I don't think they there. think about it. I don't think it. I don't think it's very thoroughly considered. I, I think it's just like you fire off an email and you do what's comfortable in email. I'd be very surprised if a lot of them thought about like, oh, how are they going to take this or it's my professor. And maybe they don't make any differentiations in how they interact with anyone, but I don't think that's yeah. because something fundamental has changed about, you know, us feeling equivalencies. I think it's just because the technology and the rapid pace of things has sort of broken down people's um, – Whatever. And I mean, part of it also, I mean, what I meant by college being a blurry time is also that, you know, people are becoming perceived as adults for the first time and getting sort of a new level of their own respect. And so I think they're less likely than at any other time to express respect in college, just in general. I just think college students as a demographic have less expression of respect than anybody because they're coming into adulthood. They're feeling their, you know, own sort of perception of things as an adult at the top of the heap and they don't owe anything to anyone because they're not out in the work world and haven't been beaten into submission. So yeah, they're in this magical yeah, I, in between time where, you know, normal codes of, and they're questioning things, you know, their horizons are broadening, they're questioning things far more than they ever have before. So, you know, it's, it's a particularly ripe time for putting away the trappings of social respect, I think. But I, I mean, I guess I, I yeah, I, mean, I understand. I, although I guess I really that's not been my experience. My experience is that okay. college students were much more respectful than high school students, frankly. Um, and and I didn't get mm. I, again. This is all really working in a very limited sample size because I sure. generally have not had a whole respect from students. But like, right. you know, on a very limited level. And of course, the other thing is that when there's ever been a respect issue with me, ninety-nine percent of the time it's been mirrored in respect problems with every other professor they have. So it's a general. Well, yeah, exactly. That's why I don't think they're thinking about it. It's not like they're like, er, that Mr. Wilson. Like I think it's unconsidered. It's just like the way they interact. Yeah, I think that's the. And you may be right about that. And I think the inc the unconsidered part, though, is really the question. This gets back to the thing about I I'm still amazed that people think that Twitter isn't private or that Facebook is, that, that, you know, they can think that, that they can be shocked that Facebook, you know, keeps things mm -hmm. on file and that, you know, therefore anything you send in a Facebook thing could be used against you. Like, I, I don't understand how people could think that. Like, it it's not it's not even an email. I mean, it's a public thing. And you, you hear all the time people saying, oh, I sent something like these two kids plotted to blow up a school or something in New Jersey on Facebook. And they were kind of stunned. Oh, I had no idea. I mean, what do you mean you had no idea? Like, Facebook is not a one-way conduit. I mean, it's a, you're on the Internet. Like, I, I don't understand how people cannot get the idea that this is a public thing. You know, I, I people, you know, certainly expect to have privacy within their own home in direct conversation, but... Defender of the death no. of privacy, but I think that Facebook has gone out of its way in particular beyond any other media outlet to make it seem like things are much more private than they are. I mean, there was a big, there's this wow. big expose on like their recent change of all the privacy settings and they right. sent out this big email that's like, we're doing all these things to enhance privacy and the actual net impact of it for 96% of users was that it broke down all these walls and barriers between different users and functionally made Facebook closer to being like the public internet than anything else ever has been. 
But just the fact that you have to log in to get into it, I mean, I think that people in their minds, it's not true, but I think that websites promote and propagate this perception in their minds that if you have to log into something, there's a, a veil of privacy that is not present in the rest of the Internet. And that anything, you know, that, I mean, it's like the idea that you can password protect blogs or something, and people are like, oh, that's like writing in my own private journal, on, you know, under my bed, you know. Like all of these things are completely illusory, but they're created to try to get people to, you know, part ways with their privacy. They're noble lies. They're like, they're like global warming. They're noble lies. They have a good, they have a net positive effect on people, but they mislead people on the way to doing it. So. Well, look, I mean, so, so the, but you admit then that they're really fundamentally manipulative, that like basically what they're doing is. Oh, that aspect of it is absolutely deliberately manipulative. I mean, I like what the, the impact is. The impact is the death of privacy. Hooray. But their means are crap. You know, I'm not going to defend them manipulating people or misleading people. But, yeah, a lot of their business model is based on the assumption that people will be able to believe because they're logging in. I mean, I, all I'm saying is I think people believe that because they're 12 years old or they're 16 years old or they've been on Facebook since they were 12 or 16, and Facebook goes out of its way to create the aura and the image because you're logging in that it, there is some privacy to it, even though it's not. Right, because, like, I mean, you you heard about the thing where two Facebook employees um, apparently have a master password and basically went in and started laughing at, you know, some of the profile information in different accounts. Right. You know, and, and that sort of got people thinking, wait, you mean you can access all that stuff? Like, they think of it as, you know, it's like a telegram or, you know, like a, uh, like a telegraph. You know, you just type out a couple things and then it's gone into the ether and, you know, no one records it. It's just out there as opposed to the idea that it actually is recorded and stored and placed someplace and, you know, is yeah. accessible later on, theoretically. Um, yeah, I mean, I could do a Malcolm Gladwell book on, you know, our discardable culture and, you know, how everything is a throwaway and everything gets replaced and nothing gets fixed anymore and that whole mentality ingrains itself into people's perception of that the Internet seems like the ultimate trash can, even though it's the ultimate sticky paper. And Centimeter has an right. Elmo book that talks about recycling, where Elmo, what, his, his little car, a tire breaks on it, and instead of throwing away it, the t car, they fix the tire. There you go. Try, and then Elmo street. encourages everyone to send him the Fighting a man, now. one step at a time. Right. Right. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah, uh, speaking of an extremely, um, a segue which only works because Clea brought up Sesame Street. <laughs> so I admit that this is, uh, I don't know how allied to the topic specifically we're talking about this will be, but um, I had never seen before, I, I, I reviewed a show uh, a night ago or so, which was called Lear, basically based on King Lear, but the, the review is not important. You, you watch the craziest Shakespeare shit. Can I just say that you have somehow, like, opened yourself up to this portal of, like, Shakespeare in bizarre world? I guess it's your curtain up thing. But I hear about more, like, busted Shakespeare from you than yeah, anyone man. else combined. There's a lot of it out there, let me tell you. There's a lot Do of it you out hear there. about uh, a lot of busted Shakespeare stuff from other people, Story? Um, I mean, no, which is why I'm making this observation. I mean, probably one or two, you know, and I've heard about three from Greg or something, so. Yeah. By three yeah. to score, you no, win. Yeah. Just my luck. 
No, okay. And, uh, I was sitting in front of the uh, I was sitting in front of the playwright actually the night that I saw it because she was talking about it. But anyway, the I don't, Bard it's is not back. A show. Oh. Um, what's that? <laughs> the Bard is and and you turned around and you were like, "Yo, Willie, what's up?" Because you had no respect for him. <laughs> exactly right. And I was like, "Look, yeah. it." Yeah. Right. But, uh, no, so I watched. So I watched it. And the show doesn't really matter about the show, but there's a part of the show in which, and again, this is one of the reasons the show wasn't successful. They start talking to Big Bird, and yes, that Big Bird, about um, you know, Big Bird starts talking about Mr. Cooper. Is Big Bird in the role of King Lear? <laughs> well, no, no. Big Bird yeah. originally the role of Edmund. Again, it didn't make any okay. sense in context either. But anyway, we're going. Lovely. So, um, but the point is that I had not realized until you know I got home and looked it up that this is actually a scene that originally had been done, and I I missed this. Apparently, it's one of the ten biggest moments in television, according to the. <laughs> When okay. 1982, the guy who had played Mr. Hooper on Sesame Street for something like you know 13 years or something died. Oh yeah. Uh, this was this and like so this was the universal happened. trauma of my generation. This and Challenger. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't. I, I didn't. For some reason, I had missed that, and I, I guess maybe because I was in between. Because when it aired in '82, at that point I was 10, and I was past Sesame Street viewing age. Right. Whatever, so I must have missed it. But they, they, and apparently, and they had the scene, and I watched it on YouTube, and it was pretty, it was amazing because they, you know, didn't, they, the Big Bird is, you know, what happened to Mr. Hooper? Well, he died, and they don't right. sugarcoat at all. Like, yeah, he's not no, exactly. That was what was so amazing about it. Yeah, and it was really yeah. controversial, but it was really cool. It was. It was amazing yeah. that they were willing to do that. Yeah, and it's, yeah. It's another example by Sesame Street, such an amazing show because they do they would do stuff like that. And they and of course the, he was also really well liked by the cast, so they were having a hard time. They only did it once. Yeah, exactly. But I was thinking about it like, can you imagine the difference between a culture which chooses to be so sanitized and on the one hand, which has no problem showing violence everywhere, but on the other hand, you know, oh my God, we've got to be careful for the children, and and a show that actually takes the children seriously. And so, right. you know, we need to try to explain this to them, not in a sort of, you know, go, let's go through the biological reasons for death, but right. really, you know, acknowledge that death is this. <laughs> and they didn't, they, they honestly didn't sugarcoat it at all. I mean, they, they right. explained what happened, and then they kind of, the camera zoomed out, and everyone's sad. And there is a sense that you'll remember him, and they all support Big Bird, and it's all. Mm-hmm. But I was really surprised and impressed, as usual, when I find out about these things on Sesame Street, that a show would do that. I was just like, I don't think a show would do that today. I don't know that a show would be brave enough to really be like, you know what, yeah. uh, we're you know, we're actually going to take you seriously and not talk down to you. Can you imagine that on Barney? You know, well, someone died. Oh, he moved away, you know, or something like that. But well, not given that Barney is nothing but talking down to people constantly for, you know, half an well, hour. Well, I don't. Plus, he <laughs> must be at least 300 <laughs> million years old, so he doesn't know a heck of a lot about death. <laughs> Seriously. What do you mean like, the clear scene is gone? Oh no. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I mean I was just I was really impressed by that and I it, it's kind of too bad that we don't level with our children in our popular culture more than we do and I thought that was really interesting. So anyway, I had never yeah. seen it before. So. I like it. Oh, do you know what that reminds me of? Um I was in uh, Disney World this week, a few days ago, while I was in Florida. Oh, <laughs> Trying not to have my head explode. Um, I was telling a story earlier that I was in Epcot, which is of any Disney venue is probably the most themed to make for my comfort. You know, it's sort of sci-fi themed future world and the countries and it's less Disney stuff. But even even Epcot 
was super offensive on on a bunch of levels. Um, <laughs> but the one thing is just being inside the world of fantasy. It started to make me daydream about creating my own theme park that I would call Reality Land, um, where you you know the ride would be that you go into like a really badly lit fluorescent lighted cube and you sit there with a big pile of papers and a <laughs> runny pen and then you file papers and then characters from the park come in and yell at you periodically no this this reminds me of two things this reminds me of the game i used to my mom used to play with me payday i don't know if you guys mm-hmm. ever played that game yeah i've played payday yeah and then Definitely. the other Better thing of than racco <laughs> On the Racco scale of games, where does it fall? Uh. Oh man, well it was ugh. it was a simple game, which I thought I was very very good at until I grew up and my mom told me how she used to let me win. But anyway, the other thing See, reminds me don't of don't sugarcoat things for your children, <laughs> or at least continue the, the line. At least <laughs> I told you there is no payday. There is no payday. Exactly. Don't tell them their privacy. They have privacy on Facebook, and don't let them win games. <laughs> the right. other thing is, where's that? Is, is it, I think it's a. Is it a restaurant in New York where where the waitresses yell at you and are really rude? Oh yeah, I've heard about this. Where is that? Is it in California? Yeah, people pay for this. I think it's funny. Yeah, I think it's called every restaurant. <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> what do you do to wait staff, Greg? Um, no, I, it's, yeah, it's somewhere in New York. It's definitely in New York, I think. Yeah, but, it's you know, terrible. it reminds me, actually, also of, um, I was telling Clea that the new movie Avatar, there's an, apparently a syndrome that they're starting to identify of oh people who are extraordinarily upset that they can't, I mean, they haven't identified it as a student yet, but. No, they, they have. I read an article about this and I almost lost my Yeah, shit. the Pandora world, they like. Some have said they want to. They feel like committing suicide because their world is not Pandora, the world represented <laughs> in Avatar. And so they're like, I can't get back to that world. And so because of that, you know, what's the point of living in reality? So 3D and privacy are killing stuff. children right now. Right. Yeah, somehow that has to do with privacy. I don't know how, but uh, yeah. So you know, uh, there is something to be said for you know the idea that. We need a corrective. So maybe, Russ, after they get out of Avatar, you just put them right back into reality world. Yeah, because that's not uh, going to make them shoot themselves. I didn't even tell you the best part. So that's how it starts. And, you know, you're in one of these harnesses, and the virtual reality screen is in front of you. It's just like Disney World. They're shooting smells at you, and they're giving you the fully immersive experience. And then you go into a doctor's office, and he tells you that you have lupus. And, and... <laughs> What the hell is wrong with you? On the way out. And you have to sit there, and then, yeah, and then you you, uh, you decide you to climb to the top of a building and jump off, and you get the whole reality of the floating, and you're like, ah! That's the roller coaster. Boom, and it shakes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they have your meagerly attended funeral right after. Meagerly attended. Why, why is oh this a salesman ride? I don't get it. Yeah. Because it doesn't you snap exist. people out of it, right? Just like, get off the fucking treadmill. People will right. come. They want this ride to have. The people build it and the people will come. It's Ed Debovic's Chicago restaurant. Thank you very much. Not New York. Chicago. No. Chicago. I should have known. The only city in the world works in New York. It's a fake 50s diner yeah. with insulting waitstaff. 
The only problem with your theory, with your idea, Russ, is what are you going to do about waiting? Since the, in the real parks you have awful waits. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can what walk you straight gonna... into this terrible thing. There's an apple. I don't expect guys. a great deal of traffic. Well, we are the world's open. Uh, <laughs> I want to see Batman. I want to see Batman. Well, you can see what Daddy does all day for a living. How about that? Oh, all right. I'm going on the call and take my daughter ride. to work. No, it's too depressing. Reality land. Yay. Go to Cubicleville. Oh. Well, see, on, the, on that delightfully uplifting note about Russ's, uh, you know, um, synthesis, you know, uh, uh, you know, synthetically created by the world, the reverse matrix. We want to thank everyone for listening in, and uh, please check out the website and all that stuff. And uh, I guess we will uh, talk to you soon. And please let us know if you want a reality world. Or Once more this year, I promise. And there's the. Say goodbye, everybody. There's the roller coaster, which I call the death of a household pet. <laughs> Where it starts with a goldfish, and then it's a turtle, and then it's and then you have the sugar coating line and the straight reality line. Which which world you want to get? The twist is when you feel like the pet's okay, and then you realize that the parents have just replaced it with a replica of nice. the old pet, and then it's all revealed. Uh, and then they have to put the new pet to sleep because nobody wants it anymore. Did I ever tell you the story about my um, my ex friend Catherine, who's um, Whose mom told her that the TV broke when really she just didn't want her to be watching TV anymore. Oh, I think I did hear this. Yeah. It's broken. It's like the sound of music. Yeah. And the same thing happened to uh, Emily when she was growing up. She and her sisters with the VCR and sound of music. And they said the VCR was broken. Oh, because yeah, because that's the way kids are. They watch the, the same movie over and over and yeah, over exactly. and over again. Exactly. So she's like, they're like, well, VCR's broken. Got to do something else with your summer. Sorry, kids. <laughs> Those same people love Russ's reality world. And those people have never gotten over this so long as they live. So don't lie to your children and kill their privacy. (laughs) Good night. Good night, folks. (laughs) Um, Oh, my God. You guys have a child. Yeah. Yeah, we do. Shit. Yeah. When she's old enough, she can go on my fully immersive uh, 3D (laughs) ride called the Arthritis Experience. It's really awesome. Uh, How would you do that one? On, where they can't, where they can't stand up, or if they stand up, they're like tilted forward. Yeah, it's just it's one of those harnesses. It puts you in like a half standing position, but slightly <laughs> bent over, and you can't move. Oh, speaking of which, is it true that Japan is like requested a plane where people have to uh, people stand up so they have more room in the plane for more people? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I have to see if that's true. How My does that dad... match the security standards where you have to be, like, strapped in a harness? Oh, Japan doesn't have cu- security standards. <laughs> well, I'm just saying enough if they want to fly to America, that nobody halfway through on. the flight, instead of standing up, you're then locked into a little pod. <laughs> <laughs> like, hung from a bag from the ceiling. You can't move. For your convenience, uh, we've locked you into our patented safety pods. Exactly. Please try to reach the tube, the breathing and eating tube, with your mouth for exactly. sustenance. For it's the like rest a grand metaphor for the whole safety debacle. <laughs> Amazing. Like, yeah, oh. Airbus. Airbus has quietly has been quietly pitching the standing room only option to Asian carriers, though none has agreed to it yet. Passengers in the standing <laughs> okay. section would Once be propped does, against. 
Stand, they'd be propped against a padded backboard <coughs> held in place with a harness, according to <laughs> Oh, they are having a harness! You can put it on the board! Yes! Oh, I'm telling you. So that's a fake-out. They're pitching it to Asia, but they'll actually sell to America, and everyone will be like, strap to a harness, strap to a harness, yay! We oh, nobody gosh. move ever on your side. Gosh. You actually have to hang your legs out the window. And then they'll start injecting. They'll just knock people out. They'll be like, general anesthetic for all flying. <laughs> nobody can be conscious. Oh, they have a picture. Nobody oh. knows what happened. Oh, they have a picture. Oh, click on that. Send us that link. Send See, us Bo- the Bo- link. Boeing's recommended configuration. Oh, Boeing has its own configuration for its 787 it Dreamliner. Describe the picture to Greg. But send yeah, that yeah. Yes. Can, can you... Can you... Can you ex? Can you can't? Can you like? Can you? Can you? Can you? Can you? No, man. This is better stuff than what we were talking about. This thing looks like a gurney standing up. It's like a standing up gurney. No, honey, I'm serious. We need. Stop recording. If Homeland Security finds out you're criticizing the harness, there will be problems. Some things I think they might be right. Crowding up my dreams make me so sad Scared to death in the middle of the night Good after report brought to you by a cadre of Indian farmers and Australian government organisations. No, I'm just kidding. Map reports an independent podcast not affiliated with emus or the emu gland farming association you can mail the mappers via the electronic mail at russ clear story and great at mapreport.com feel free to propagate the website which is at mapreport.com and visiting your various social networking organizations on the internet to propagate emu centric satirical podcasts thanks very much and if that's the case, then my life's a waste Cause there's nothing left to live for but tomorrow And tomorrow's just another day away